Well, in September 2005, I moved to the North Shore, not of Lake Pontchartrain, but uh, the North Shore of Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, the North Shore of Boston uh, is kind of all the little towns that follow the coast between Boston up to Gloucester and Rockport. I was a southerner headed to New England for seminary. My grandmother was terrified. Uh, and, and I really didn't have a sense of how different things would be uh, in the Boston area. The transition wasn't really strange for me. The people of Boston are friendly enough. The food is great. Baseball depends on the year. <laughs> but I joined a church that was so helpful and formative, and it was exactly what I needed at that time in my life. I met my wife there. She's a New Englander. The seminary I went to was fantastic. But Boston was different. One of the biggest differences, um, again, this is back in 2005, so almost 20 years ago, um, one of the biggest differences was the general absence of evangelical churches. Um, you know, here you have a church on every corner. There, the churches were shutting down. Church buildings were regularly becoming restaurants, uh, apartment buildings, and homes. Um, when we visit now, granted this is a, a good deal later, it's, it's even more stark. In the town where my brother-in-law lives, um, there are two churches right in the middle of town. We were, this was last Thanksgiving we were there. We were driving through town, and we saw two churches. There was a Catholic church, and this other one, I was like, I've never heard of this before. What is this group? So I look it up. Oh, it's a cult. <laughs> okay, cool. So the two, the two churches in town are a Roman Catholic church and a cult. Things have changed even more in the Boston area. Long ago, I mean, Boston, same as anywhere else in the U.S., kind of had some sort of cultural Christianity. There was kind of an assumption of Christian association. That's just not the case anymore. What you may not recognize is that the same shift is occurring here. We're just behind the curve by about maybe 20 years. You've no doubt heard the language of the United States becoming more and more, quote, post-Christian, right? That means that the population of our country and the place where we live, the population around us no longer prefers Christianity or tends toward Christianity. When kids are born, there's, there's no um, social urge to learn about Jesus, to go to church. It's just not a thing anymore. In St. Tammany Parish, there's still some social capital, capital to gain from attending church, and you can see that by listening to the guys and gals running for office. You go on their website, and all their websites tell you where they go to church. So there's some social capital still to be gained in St. Tammany, but as the years pass, the population of St. Tammany Parish will become increasingly neutral and more than that, opposed to Christianity. Because Christianity... We all love Jesus here, but it is a very exclusive sort of religion. Jesus says some very hard things, and he tells us to go and tell others the message. And so increasingly, we should expect that the proselytizing, exclusive message of Jesus will not be tolerated, that it will be opposed. Now, for a lot of Christians, that's alarming. Um, it causes them to fear what the future holds. It, it causes them to, to be afraid for their kids and grandkids. It gives them a deep unease with where things are headed. Because there was a time in our country when it was very comfortable to be a Christian. In fact, in many people's way of thinking, to be an American was to be a Christian. But more and more, that's not the case. More and more, we are going to feel 
like sojourners and outsiders in the place that we live. We're going to feel like a people in exile. To live in exile means to be a sojourner and outsider in the place that we inhabit. And starting today and into the four Sundays of Advent, we will be considering what it means to live in exile. To live in a place and among a people where we are more outsiders and strangers than insiders and citizens. And the question we'll be asking is this, how do you do it? How do you live in that world with hope and joy? When you feel like a fish out of water, when you feel like your whole life goes against the grain of the place where you live. One of our guiding texts for these five Sundays is going to be Psalm 89. Psalm 89, if you look at the, 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 the prescription there above the, the, the psalm, it says, a masculine of Ethan the Ezraite. It was written by Ethan the Ezraite. Now, we don't know much about this guy. All we really know about Ethan is derived from the psalm. What we can see from what he says in this psalm is that the world around him was changing. Earlier in his life, he felt much more at home than when he wrote this psalm. Something had changed. What was that change? Again, the content of the psalm seems to suggest that it was probably 586 B.C., which all of you, I'm sure, when I say 586 B.C., you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, there's probably three of you that do. It's the invasion of the Babylonians. In 586 B.C., the Babylonian Empire destroyed Jerusalem and carried the tribes of Judah and Benjamin off to live in subjugation. Imagine what that must have been like. It's not that the culture just kind of slowly shifted over time. No, this was an abrupt and radical shift. Jerusalem was under siege. They were starved to death, so they had to resort to cannibalism. Then, when they were utterly broken in their strength... Jerusalem's walls were destroyed, it was invaded, people were slaughtered, the temple was leveled, the king was taken away, the throne was destroyed, and now Israel is living in captivity once more. This is like the undoing of everything that had happened thus far. Israel had been saved from captivity before, they'd finally gotten their land, they'd finally gotten Jerusalem, they got a king, and now it's gone. So what's a psalm writer, a worship leader of God's people, what's he to do with all this? How do you yourself worship, let alone invite other people to worship when you're living in exile, when everything has fallen apart? Let's see how Ethan sings and how he invites others to sing with him. Look again at the beginning of our psalm. Ethan says in verse 1, I will sing of the steadfast love of Yahweh forever. With my mouth I'll make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So Ethan begins by singing God's steadfast covenant love. He says, God, you're faithful to keep your promises through all generations. That's how he starts. This overwhelming confidence in who God is and what God will do. And that overwhelming praise continues for 37 verses. 
in exile. He overflows with joy and hope because of the faithfulness of God for 37 verses. But then in verse 38, it's as though Ethan's heart bursts like a dam under all the pressure of exile. And honesty comes flowing forth. Look at verse 38. But now you've cast off and rejected. You're full of wrath against your anointed. That's your Meshiach, your king. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust. You see how active he's making God in this? God is in the active tense here. Verse 40, you have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruin. And all who pass by plunder him. He's become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and have, and you have made, not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You've covered him with shame. Ethan knew God's promises. He even believed God's promises. But the present experience really seemed as though God had not only forsaken his promises, but Israel itself. The king is dishonored. Jerusalem's walls are breached. God's people have become a mockery to their neighbors and their enemies. Ethan knows and believes God's promises, but they don't seem to be coming true. I love this psalm. I appreciate Ethan's honesty with the tension in his heart. It's raw. It might sound as though he's lobbying accusations at God, that he's being blasphemous, but his words make sense. I get it. I've had moments of tension and doubt and struggle in my life, and I've thought, does God care at all? Is he listening? Has he forgotten us? Is he even there? That's what it feels like to live in exile. Living in exile is confusing, especially when things seem to be getting worse. Maybe the shift in American culture doesn't bother you. Maybe you don't see it. Maybe you don't feel it. Maybe you didn't grow up in the South, or like me, you lived in Boston or somewhere like that for a while, and so it's just not surprising to you anymore. You've gotten used to it. But in case your head is still in the sand about the sociological trends in our country, let me be very direct. You don't live in the promised land. You never lived in the promised land. Where do we live? We live in Egypt. We live in Babylon. We live in Rome. We live in exile. And we should not expect that reality to change or lessen definitely until Jesus returns. Could it change? Sure. But I, just look at kind of the trends and what sociologists say. This is what seems like it's happening. And as you begin to see that shift, you might start to wonder what God's doing. Let's set aside all the, the, the cultural post-Christian stuff for a second. Maybe that's not relevant to you at all because you have personal difficulties in your life. 
You don't need to think about what's happening next door. You're thinking about what's happening in your home, in your life. And it makes you wonder whether God gives a rip, whether God's in control, whether God's really there. You've had relationships fall apart. Your health has been in flux. Your finances, your your security are in question. And you find yourself asking questions like this. Look at this, verses 46 through 48. Unbelievable. Ethan says, How long, O Yahweh, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you've created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? When you find yourself praying prayers like these, thinking thoughts like these, what you're feeling is the difficulty and confusion of living in exile. And here's a truth I want you to take to heart. Living in exile is not rare or odd for followers of Yahweh. No, exile is the place we've most often called home. What happened to Ethan and Israel in 586 B.C. is deeply tragic. Also, the the changes that are happening in our country, it's worth grieving. But we need to be careful. When you look at the history of Israel, and when you look at the history of of the church, it is a very rare experience for God's people to live on earth with a sense of belonging or with a sense of comfort and safety. I mean, think about the history of Israel. When were they ever really at rest? Like late in David's reign, into the reign of Solomon, and then it all fell apart again. Outside of that very slim period of time, they were either enslaved or in exile or under the thumb of a foreign government. They were wandering in the desert or heavily harassed. Israel almost never felt at home on the earth. What about the church? What about the followers of Christ? When and where have Christians experienced freedom without persecution and harassment. Well, you can see it in moments of Western civilization, particularly in the United States, but those moments of freedom and comfort in the grand scope of human history are very short-lived. We came here to this country to escape persecution, right? Here's the point. Exile is the place we've most often called home. So a cultural preference toward God or toward Christ or toward church or even toward truth, that's weird. That's strange. But for evangelicals in America, it's it's kind of the thing we've experienced most recently. We grew up experiencing freedom. And as you feel that shift in the, the air and the culture, it can feel traumatic. We think that freedom is the norm. And we expect the world around us to sort of rubber stamp our beliefs and practices. And we think incorrectly that the change that's happening is an anomaly. That the change is strange. That our generation is experiencing something that no one else has ever experienced. But that's just not true. Exile is the place we've most often called home. It is the norm for the church to be persecuted. It is not to be expected that followers of of Yahweh will somehow be uh, accepted in the culture. No, historically, we are marginalized, misunderstood, and misrepresented. So this change is a return to normal. Now, that's hard. Exile is not a fun place to live. It was hard for Ethan. 
it'll be hard for us too. It'll be hard for your kids and grandkids. We hear the promises of God, but then we look around us and it doesn't look like they're coming true. So when we're living in exile, it can seem like God has forgotten his promises. So I want you to pause and think about the place and the time that you inhabit. I want you to think about your unique situation, your difficulties, your challenges. In your experience, which promises does God seem slow and fulfilling? That might be a hard question for you to answer. Maybe you never thought about it before. You might be nervous to admit which promises of God you think you might not be keeping. You're afraid that might be abject faithlessness to even answer that question. Well, let me show you another lament like Ethan's to invite you into this question. But this lament wasn't spoken long ago. No, it's a lament spoken by God's people today. I'm not about to read a newspaper clipping to you. I'm actually going to read from Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6, we see a vision of heaven today. In heaven today, right now, there is a cry of lamentation coming before God. And this is what they're praying to God right now. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So in heaven right now, every martyr, every person killed for the Christian faith from Peter to Paul to Jim Elliot, they're praying before God. And what are they praying for? Justice. And not because they have some axe to grind against the people that killed them. Those were the people they loved and wanted to know Christ. Now they're praying this because God's name is denigrated among the nations. Ethan says the same thing. Look again at verses 49 through 51. Verse 49, Ethan says, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Yahweh, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. What's the concern? It's not just God's people who feel this tension. It's not just God's people who see, oh, he made a promise that there would always be a Davidic king and now there isn't one. It's not just Christians. It's not just the Jews who see this tension. No, the world sees it. And they use this as a grounds to blaspheme, to not believe, to reject and oppose the truth. And so the martyrs and Ethan call out to God, vindicate your just name, prove yourself. To be faithful and true and just. Let the world see who you are, lest your name be further sullied by the reproach of the world. When we observe this tension, when we name it and say, God, it seems like you're not keeping your promise. It's not blasphemy or faithlessness. It can be. But I'm encouraging you to do it like Ethan and the martyrs. We trust that God will keep his promises. Therefore, we ask him to do it. So again... In your experience, 
Which promises does God seem slow in fulfilling? I'm going to leave a couple minutes of silence to let you chew on this question. you got space in your worship guide. If you can bring yourself to do it, to even write down the promise of God that you feel like he's being slow in keeping to his people. So we'll take a couple minutes for reflection. So where do we go from here? Here we are, like Ethan the Ezraite, suffering, struggling, doubting. We know the promises of God. We've heard the promises of God. But when we look at our present experience, it seems like those things are not coming true. So how do we respond to that experience like Ethan? Not with faithless despair. Don't read faithlessness in this psalm. Don't read despair in this psalm. No, we, we, we see honest faith in this psalm. So how do we respond in the same way? To faithfully endure the suffering and confusion of exile, first, you need to be honest with God, yourself, and with fellow sojourners about your struggle. So Ethan wrote his struggles into a psalm. He inscribes his pain and his questions into a worship song (laughs) intended to be shared and sung with other people. And that means that this psalm has three different audiences. Audience number one, it was written to God. It was a worship song written to be sung to him in times of difficulty and confusion. That's audience one, God. Audience number two, it was written to be sung by other followers of God who found themselves in a similar place of pain and difficulty. So God's people, that was the second audience. The third audience, Ethan no doubt wrote it for himself. He needed to dig into his own pain, his own questions, so that he could communicate them to God and to others with any form of clarity. I find this three-audience approach instructive. If you are weary with your sojourning, if you are struggling If you live under this pressure of what feels like God not keeping his promises, don't keep that to yourself. First, be honest with God. Do like Ethan does. Do like the martyrs do in Revelation 6. Bear your soul to him. And if you feel like you can't put your feelings into words, use Psalm 89. Rewrite the psalm in your own words and direct it. To God, be honest with God about the difficulty, confusion, and strain that you feel. And if you're afraid that by doing that, you might overstep the bounds into faithlessness and sin, have courage. God can take it. I once heard an Anglican minister in Birmingham, Alabama say, God's shoulders are pretty broad. He can take whatever you level at him. He can hear your pain, your doubt, your confusion. He understands you. He knows your frame. So be honest with the difficulty and confusion and strain that you feel. Second, talk to a trusted Christian friend about how you feel. 
another sojourner, preferably one with more experience and wisdom than you. The point is not that misery loves company. It's that God made us to live in community with other Christians who can encourage us on the way. We may be living in exile, but we still find a a sense of belonging and family together. We are the people of Israel in Egypt. We're the camp of Israel in the wilderness following the cloud and fire home. We are the persecuted church under the thumb of Rome. We find our sense of home with one another. So be honest with yourself. Be honest with God and with other Christians about the difficulty of living in exile. This is the place we've most often called home. But here's a second practice I see in Ethan's psalm that can help us deal with exile and the confusion that it brings. Recognize that your story is an extension of and another chapter in the story of Israel and the church. When I say that exile is a place we've most often called home, it's because we are an extension of them. Their story is ours, which means that we are not Americans, first and foremost. We're members of the kingdom of God, which God founded on earth. When, when did he found this kingdom on earth? When he called Abraham out of the nations. Your story is their story and theirs is ours. So do you know the story of Israel that is your story? Do you know its humble beginnings with Abraham? Do you know of Israel's travails in Egypt and the wilderness wanderings? Do you know the stories of Joshua? And the judges of Saul, David, and Solomon. Do you know the story from there? I haven't preached on it yet. I haven't been here enough years yet. The divided kingdom, the invasions of Assyria and Babylon, preaching that a little bit today, the time in exile, the return to Jerusalem under Ezra and Nehemiah. Do you know the promises that God made through his prophets throughout that story? And do you know the story of the greatest king that Israel has ever known? who came to fully and completely restore and save Israel from her exile? Do you know the story of how Israel conspired with the nations of the world to kill that king? And do you know that that king intended to bring God's kingdom anew? And that all who submit to his kingship are grafted into Israel, and are spreading that kingdom to the ends of the earth. Do you know the story of how this spirit-filled people called the church have served their resurrected king, the king of Israel, for 2,000 years and that we still await his return? The story of God's people began with Abraham and is ultimately not about Israel and its restoration. It's about the restoration of all humanity through Israel. It's a beautiful, magnificent story in your life is part of that story. So get to know that story. When you start to see its beauty, it's an epic story, when you see it from beginning to end, and you realize that your story is a part of that story, what do we find? I find it helpful that we don't know much about Ethan. So he lived 2,600 years ago, and there's almost nothing that we know for sure about his life. 2,600 years from now, I'm pretty confident nobody's going to remember me. I don't think any of my uh, writings are going to survive 2,600 years and, and be spoken by a follower of Jesus, right? But I don't need to know the ins and outs of Ethan's story because Ethan's story is my story. 
Ethan's experience is my experience. And it's the same story as Samson's story and Ruth's story and John Mark's story and Lydia's story. All these people we meet in the scriptures, we've all lived in exile. We've all struggled with these realities, and God has responded in the same ways. He is faithful. If we could start interpreting our own lives and our own experiences in light of that bigger story, it might be easier to see what God's doing. Our experience isn't strange. Our confusion and our difficulty aren't strange. Exile is the place we've most often called home. It just feels new to us. But if you read the story and you start to view your life through the lens of that story... It'll help you to endure exile with your faith intact. Here's a third practice to help us endure the difficulty of living in exile. I hinted at it already. Remember that King Jesus has already inaugurated the return from exile. We have one wonderful thing that Ethan didn't have, and that's the end of the story. When Jesus was born into the tribe of Judah, into the lineage of David, the return from exile began. These promises made to David that Ethan says, what, what's going on here? Are you not keeping your promises? When Jesus was born, God began to say yes to all of those promises. And when Jesus came, he came not just to restore Israel from exile, but in fact, all humanity. When he died and was raised and ascended to the throne of heaven, all of God's promises given in the Old Testament began to come to fulfillment. So now, though we do live in exile... And though we do face difficulty, we are headed toward consummation and completion. We know how the story ends. Jesus has made the promise he's going to come one day to do away with all evil and make all things right. And we know this is true because of what he's already done. The fatal blow to our enemies has already been struck. He has died and overcome death. He has died under our sins and overcome our sins. He has defeated Satan, death, sin, everything that wages war against us. So over the next four Sundays, this is what we're going to explore. How the incarnation and birth of Jesus Christ answers Ethan's questions and our own. And in exploring that notion, here's what we're going to discover. Knowing and trusting the good news of Jesus enables a sojourner to live with faith, hope, joy, and comfort. Because restoration is coming soon. It feels like God's being slow in keeping his promises. It may feel that way to you. often feels that way to me. But they will come to pass. In fact, Christ has already begun the, their fulfillment, and soon they'll be fulfilled entirely. And so what do we do? We wait. We wait. We long. We trust. We hope. We grieve. And we do all things together in song, in prayer, and in conversation. So brothers and sisters, take heart. Be encouraged. You're not alone. The confusion that you feel, the pain you experience, it's not even an anomaly. It's kind of a norm for Israel and the church. Exile is the place we've most often called home. So be honest with God, with yourself, with Christians you trust. Know the story of Israel and the church and let that story make sense of your story. And remember that Jesus' incarnation has already inaugurated the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Exile will come to an end, and soon we will be at home, truly at home, 
So be at peace, my fellow exiles. Let's pray.